And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. One of the great New Testament scholars of this last generation has been uh, N.T. Wright, uh, Anglican bishop, uh, and he really has written the the best single volume on the resurrection of Jesus. I think it's called the Resurrection of the Son of God. It is the it's a masterpiece, uh, no doubt about it. Um, and yet, you know, he does not hold to the, the full. He's not in full communion with the Catholic Church. But he he published a book dealing with um, our hope. What what is the Christian hope? I think it's called "Surprised by Hope," and in it, there's an unfortunate chapter in which I don't think he deals really very straightforwardly with the Catholic teaching on purgatory. And uh, I just came across it again uh, last weekend, and I thought, let me just go and reiterate what the Catholic Church actually teaches on purgatory, because I think this is probably going to be coming up in popular conversations with non-Catholic Christians. Uh, Look, a lot of people think Catholics don't believe in purgatory anymore. Somehow the Second Vatican Council got rid of purgatory. Well, if you mean by purgatory, first of all, a second chance after death for repentance, or if you mean by purgatory some money-making scheme of the medieval church, or if you mean by purgatory that Christ uh, failed to properly redeem us on Calvary and and we've got to kind of do his work for him, then the Catholic Church never did teach purgatory because none of those things are right. And, uh, you know, we can argue over some of the graphic and severe imagery that's been used by Christian teachers to illustrate the doctrine of purgatory, but uh, we should also remember that the ecumenical councils of uh, Lyon and Florence and Trent all forbade fanciful elaborations, especially in public sermons. I mean, they went out of their way to say, don't exaggerate what we know about purgatory. In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church restricts its discussion of purgatory to only four paragraphs, beginning at uh, paragraph 1030. And this is, let me read that paragraph, in fact. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So the Catholic understands purgatory as that temporary state or place or condition or process after death by which those who are in Christ are purged of disordered self-love and cleansed of any remaining moral and spiritual imperfections, you know? I know most people think of purgatory as a place. Uh, It might be better to think about it in terms of process, because our journey to heaven begins here on earth. And uh, if heaven is a place of mutual and unhampered love uh, between God and human beings, then it appears that most of us end our earthly journey not quite prepared. We're flawed lovers at best, right? We still... uh, don't love as intensely, as purely as we should do. We still have disordered um, uh, attachments. But the purification that begins on earth continues because of God's grace until we are completely fit for eternal union with God. 
And I, I don't know why that's so difficult uh, to understand. There is a process that much, must take place uh, to perfect us that begins when we are regenerated by the waters of baptism, if we are an adult, of course, faith in baptism. Um, but then we die, and something has to happen to prepare us to be present to God perfectly. And whatever that process is, we call purgatory. And the Church talks about this undergoing purification. Um, somebody might object, but aren't we forgiven in Christ what remains to be done? He's, hasn't he forgiven it all? Well, yeah, we're forgiven in Jesus. Of course we're forgiven. But we're not transformed entirely, not yet. You know, God loves us the way we are right now, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. He t- accepts us where we are right now, but to move us to where he is. And that's a process. And if that process is not entirely completed at the moment of our death, then something has to occur post-mortem to finish off that perfection. We often die uh, with unhealthy attachments to sin. Uh, We still end up loving created things more than our Creator. And at the hour of our death, our souls might not be fully fixed on evil, but they're not fully fixed on the perfections of God either. I think it was Romano Guardini who put it this way, uh, those who need further purification after death are those whose intention has not penetrated sufficiently below the surface to reach the settled resistance beneath and the depths filled with evil and impurity. Um, we aren't unrepentant at death. We're just unperfected. Let me say that again. We aren't unrepentant at death. That's why we have, the again, the sacrament of the anointing, what we used to call last rites or extreme unction. We aren't unrepentant. We are just unperfected. And the Spirit of Jesus dwells within us. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, but we fall short of being the lovers who can embrace face-to-face communion with God, whose love, remember, is like a consuming fire. So how are we to enter heaven in which no unclean thing dwells, right? How are we to dwell with a God whose eyes are too pure to behold iniquity? These are all basic biblical passages. How are we to enjoy fellowship with a God who's infinite in his perfections when we lack perfection? No, heaven is not filled with souls sporting I'm-not-perfect-just-forgiven T-shirts. It's filled with glorious beings whose perfection moves us like the sight of great mountains. And sadly, it appears that most of us die before that great transformation. Now, uh, it's legitimate to ask, where is that grounded in Scripture? Well, uh, for the ancient Hebrews, prayers for the dead were a pious act. And uh, we were told, withhold not kindness from the dead. It is a holy and pious thought to pray for the dead. These are, again, in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. uh, And these are in uh, what are sometimes called the deuterocanonical books. Second century uh, Christian documents, uh, like the Acts of Paul and Thecla and the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, show us that uh, the early church 
continued the practice of praying for the dead. And so while these documents aren't inspired, some of these documents are not necessarily inspired scripture, they do indicate prayers for the dead were not uh, some outlandish later innovation. They were rather an assumed and a a customary practice for the early church. And I have to say, the logic of prayers for the dead seems to demand something like purgatory. Because if the dead are in heaven, they don't need our prayers. And if they're in hell, our prayers aren't going to do them any good. So there must be some post-mortem place, some post-mortem condition, some post-mortem process that we can affect by our prayers. And Scripture itself describes a purifying fire that some will pass through after death, which which purges their souls of of, uh, corrupt and imperfect elements. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 to 15, where uh, St. Paul says, He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, that passage largely is dealing with Christian teachers uh, who uh, teach poorly or who teach well, and how God uh, evaluates uh, their teaching. But the point is, it occurs (laughs) post-mortem. All right? Okay, that's the important. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is after death. And we also have to consider what Jesus meant when he said that whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Certainly there's some possibility of post-death shalom or restitution or forgiveness in view here. Now, sometimes people say, well, what about the thief on the cross? He was promised that on the day of his death he'd be with Christ in paradise. Well, yes, uh, what is um, paradise here? Christ descended into the realm of the dead, and he didn't return to heaven until his ascension, 40 days after his resurrection. And still, uh, New Testament scholarship teaches that the term paradise in this passage doesn't refer to heaven. It's a place of bliss and rest between death and resurrection. So to the conventional language of days or years or centuries in purgatory, just remember that the purgatory has no clock. It occurs outside of time. So sometimes, you know, the explanations we've used in the past kind of break down uh, for us today. I think we compare purgatory or final purification to being like the antechamber of heaven. You know, you're like a lame beggar. You've gotten an invitation to the king's wedding supper. And the invitation specifies that you have to arrive healthy and properly bathed in, in your best attire. The king's mansion is far away. And you can only reach there over perilous terrain. You fear that you don't have the stamina, you don't have the wardrobe, and you don't have the courage to present yourself successfully uh, at this supper of the king. Nevertheless, the king has called you. So you set off for the banquet in this faraway land. And you're growing in anticipation of communion with the king and his guests. And along the way, your travel is full of travail. And yet, You're getting stronger as you go along. It's rigorous, but the exercise rids you of a respiratory condition you thought might disqualify you. Uh, Your atrophied leg begins to generate new muscle. The mud and the briars ruin your best clothes, and yet that old body odor that's clung to you is still pungent enough to bring tears to the eyes of a musk ox. But you arrive. The king's steward looks at the invitation, and he says, Ah, 
I can see you are in the king's good graces. He then tries to usher you in for inspection before you can be seated. And you say, "Uh, look, isn't there a place where I can shower or wash my clothes? And the steward says, yes, we've provided all that you need. He lays out bathing oils and the robes you're to wear after your shower. And before you know it, you're fit for the king. Some people say, well, then, is purgatory a place of suffering? Yes, but it's the suffering that conforms us to Christ. And throughout the New Testament, that's one of the major lessons of the Christian, that our suffering is productive suffering. It's redemptive suffering, and it's meant to lead us into the joy that he had as he endured the cross. Purgatory is essential to our understanding of Catholic salvation.